Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. It's a federal holiday week, which means we have a holiday clips episode for you. Let's listen back to my March conversation with Metropolitan Museum of Art curator Elise Nelson. Along with Wendy S. Walters, Nelson is the co-curator of Fictions of Emancipation, Carpo Recast, which is at the Met through March 5th, 2023. It's the most buzzy and probably the most important historical art exhibition at an American museum this year. The exhibition interrogates French sculptor Jean-Baptiste Carpeau's 1868-73 marble bust, Why Born Enslaved, and places the sculpture in the context of French history, racialization, and the representation of black men and women by sculptors in Europe and the U.S. during and after the 19th century. The Met has published an outstanding catalog for the project, an absolute must-read. The catalog is available from IndieBound and Amazon for about 25 bucks. What a deal. Elise Nelson, after the break. On view through April 2023 at the Getty Villa Museum in Malibu, the glorious new exhibition, Nubia, Jewels of Ancient Sudan, displays beautiful jewelry, metalwork, and sculpture that show off the wealth and splendor of Nubian society. Located in present-day southern Egypt and northern Sudan, the kingdoms of ancient Nubia flourished for nearly 3,000 years. The exhibition features objects from the Museum of Fine Arts Boston's collection, you can also discover contemporary artwork inspired by Nubia in Adornment Artifact, a series of sister exhibitions at five sites across L.A. Plan your visit and book free reservations at getty.edu. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Gordon Parks, Stokely Carmichael, and Black Power, showcasing the renowned photographer's never-before-seen photographs and footage of Black Power leader Stokely Carmichael for Life magazine. Parks had a prolific career as the first black staff member at Life, and his artistry extended to writing, film, and music. Parks captures the true essence of the African-American experience and the civil rights moment. El Italia calls this presentation, quote, one of the 10 exhibitions not to be missed this fall around the world. On view through January 16th at the MFAH. Learn more at mfah.org slash Gordon Parks. Support for the Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, an art museum in St. Louis where ideas are freely explored, new art is exhibited, and historic work reimagined. This fall, the Pulitzer presents Barbara Chase Ribu, Monumentale, The Bronzes, a major monographic presentation examining the artistic vision of the Paris-based artist, novelist, and poet Barbara Chase Ribu. On view from September 16th to February 5th, 2023, Monumentale brings together some 40 major sculptures from the 1950s to the present day, accompanied by 20 drawings. The exhibition illustrates the artist's highly original visual language that is fundamentally global and transhistorical, with influences ranging from Italian Baroque architecture to West African bronze making. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. The Georgia Museum of Art at the University of Georgia presents Infinity on the Horizon, an exhibition that brings attention to the power art has to influence our understanding of the environment. Open through December 31st, it features modern and contemporary objects in the museum's permanent collection, including art by Georgia O'Keeffe, Elaine de Kooning, and Richard Mayhew. Foregrounding female, black, indigenous, and queer perspectives, it underscores how abstraction as an artistic strategy can expand our understanding of the landscapes around us. 
Visit georgiamuseum.org for more information about Infinity on the Horizon, or visit AthensGA.com to plan a trip. California artist Alexis Smith is widely known for working in collage, layering quotes from film and literature with movie posters, album covers, advertisements, and newspapers. She highlights the narratives embedded in our culture, asking us to think critically about how they inform our sense of self and our society. Now, through February 2022, immerse yourself in Smith's collection of images and objects, the recently expanded Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego La Jolla campus. From intimate artists' books to room-sized installations, visitors will witness film, literature, pop culture, and Hollywood reinvented. Plan your visit to the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego by going to mcasd.org. And we're back. Elise Nelson, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. A few years ago, the Met acquired a Carpeau sculpture. It was modeled in 1868 and carved in 1873. It's known as Why Born Enslaved? Exclamation point. Could you briefly describe it? We'll have images on manpodcast.com, of course, and detail what types of presenting or interrogating exhibitions about the sculpture that, that y'all considered before arriving where you arrived with the show that's up now. When I first arrived at the museum, actually before I arrived at the museum, as part of my interview process, I proposed we ought to do something in regards to the representation of the Black figure in the European sculpture collection. And, you know, these works had never been really well contextualized or critically analyzed. And so the idea for an exhibition on this subject matter actually preceded the acquisition of this work because we already had a terracotta version of it in the collection, which came into the collection in 1997 and was on view in one of our galleries until 2015 and then was briefly off view and then was lent to Denise Morel's Posing Modernity exhibition. So I was thinking largely about Cordier and Carpeau, but also was thinking across, you know, other parts of the collection and with our porcelain collection and, and just representation generally. And that is there a way to address this in the form of an exhibition or should it be in our permanent gallery displays? So after I joined, it was on my mind, but there was nothing concrete planned. And then within, I think just literally weeks of my joining the department, Sarah Lawrence, who is the new department head of European Sculpture and Decorative Arts, was presented with this opportunity to acquire a really exquisite marble carved version of Why Born Enslaved. And so she spent that spring, you know, pursuing it and finding a way for us to acquire it. And I supported that acquisition. And as we acquired it, or as we went through that process and immediately following it, officially entering into the collection, I was kind of on my way. And, you know, Sarah posed the really provocative and inspiring question of, can we be other than complicit in the aestheticization of slavery in our display of this work of art? And that was the prompt and challenge that I then, you know, took on and wanted to address. And so the exhibition, the idea of wanting to to address this was always around. The focus on this one object 
came after its acquisition. And the reason I felt like an exhibition of this nature or, or, or that this object could be the good lynch, a great linchpin for this argument is because it embodies, it sits at the intersection of so many threads of history of 19th century empire and colonialism. I think it embodies the contradictions that we see across the board and works that carry an abolitionist message. And I was really interested in untangling the many unknowns or I guess obscurities in our historical record about this work of art, where there have been a lot of positive speculation about Carpo's intentions and a lot of focus on the abolitionist aspect, but not a lot of focus on its relationship to ethnography and colonialism. And so I wanted to bring all those large ideas of the 19th century together. And this object became a good mooring around which to do that. So quickly, before we move on, what do we need to know about what the sculpture looks like? Well, okay. So the composition exists in many media, and it's an important thing to understand about Carpo's work that it it wasn't original, originally in any one medium, or we can't identify which medium it was because he presented both a marble and a bronze version of this sculpture at the 1869 Paris Salon, which indicates that it was always meant to be seen in multiple media. But the work of art is a bust of a woman of African descent who is looking over her shoulder. She is semi-nude. She has a kind of classical drapery that is wrapped around her body, but not covering it. And she's bound by rope, you know, binds her arms and her torso. And as she looks over her shoulder, she, you know, gives a very defiant powerful expression of resistance. And it's her twisting motion that has been interpreted largely as a symbol of protest or resistance. And that symbolism then is further conveyed through a powerful inscription on its base that reads in French, Pourquoi notre esclave, which we've translated to Why Born Enslaved. And it ends with an exclamation point rather than a question mark So it is both a question and a proclamation, and I think a provocation to the viewers who would have seen it first at the 1869 Salon. The rope also frames one of the subject's breasts, which I suspect may come up later on. We've introduced the Carpo, but the exhibition starts before the Carpo with kind of a mini, mini history of French sculptors and other Europeans pretty much mostly Europeans, thinking through the representation of Blackness. Most of these works indeed precede the Carpo, which we're going to have fun discussing in the context of your excellent essay later on. So let's talk about a couple of those earlier works before we we, we build to more on the Carpo. There are two Udons in the show from the 1780s and 90s. Why was Udon trying to represent Black subjects at the end of the 18th century? And how might we consider how he tried to do so. In the 17, late 1770s, Udon had gained a lot of recognition as this, you know, highly sought after sculptor of enlightenment subjects. But he was at a stage in his career where he had received commissions from governments outside of France, but hadn't ever received a royal commission. So I think one of the important background pieces of background information for that work is to understand his ambitions as a sculptor who was seeking recognition from the monarch (laughs) in France. And so he actually rather audaciously 
proposed a fountain that would feature a white marble bather sitting in a basin and standing next to her was a black servant holding in her hand a golden ewer from which water poured over the body of the bather. In its original form, this representation of a black figure was very much in line with aristocratic notions of luxury and that the black figure was an accompanying attendant to the white figure and was a symbol of her, you know, luxury and lifestyle. And it was a very sort of a work of art that fits in with sort of exoticizing notions of, uh, of luxury and blackness. I think Udon's intentions behind this is something actually that I'm quite interested in investigating further and working on an article with Christophe Brouard, who lent the figure from Soissons. So there, I think there's still a lot, a lot to say about the status of Black people in Paris in the late 1770s, the extent to which Houdon saw Black people around him, and the way in which slavery was both visible and invisible in Paris, because it's unclear where the, the status of this servant is that she's enslaved or subservient in other ways through a different type of servitude. So this is absolutely not an abolitionist work in its original conception, quite the opposite, and came around at a moment that you know precedes the establishment of the Ami de Noir, the, the French abolitionist society, but also coincides roughly with Condorcet's writing about slavery. So it's a moment in time. And then 1794, and what, what happens after is the French Revolution, this massive shift in perspective, right? The- let me let me jump in. The first one dates to about 1781, the first Udon in the show, and the second one dates to around 1794. So in between. Yes. So I'm going to back up. So we're if we're still talking about the fountain. So the fountain figure or the fountain group was proposed for the king, but that proposal or commission was rejected. And so instead he ended up selling it to the Duc de Chartres and it stood or was installed in the Parc Monceau just outside of Paris. And during the French Revolution, it was vandalized and partially destroyed. The marble bather survived and went back to Oudon's studio where he restored it in part. And today that marble bather is in the Met's collection. And the eerie part of it is that it stands alone now and people don't have the context or understand that it was originally accompanied by this black figure. The black figure is lost. It was cast in lead. And I think it's interesting to speculate about why it was destroyed. You know, was this about melting down materials? Was this about destroying an image that was clearly about racial inequality and everything that the ancien regime represented? So I think the act of vandalism is interesting in its own right. But so what does, Car- what does <laughs> sorry, Oudon do after that? He had in his studio the the model for the black figure, which Udon's work, he's so focused on the faces, naturalistic representation of faces of figures. And the bodies you'll notice often are more idealized, especially with female nudes. So the, the face is the thing he was really focused on in terms of his modeling and studying for, for the piece. And there's a Boyi painting that shows that he kept this on his shelf along with a lot of other of his his models. 
though he had, despite the lead cast figure being destroyed, he still had this model in his studio. At one point, kind of finished it and painted it, and it was a full bust. In the exhibition, we are so, you know, it's it's remarkable that it survives, and we have this work of art. However, it's just a head now because during World War One, the bombings of Soissons compromised the work, and we're lucky to have just a fragment remaining. So, but after 1794, Houdon then was reflecting on the abolition of slavery, and in his oeuvre, he had only ever represented the Black figure as, again, a kind of symbol of the Ancien Regime and a symbol of white supremacy, and perhaps in a moment of being quite concerned about his fate under a new government, a revolutionary government, he decided to repurpose that work of art, and he did so by attaching it to a sockle or a base on which he inscribed a commemorative statement about the abolition of slavery in 1794. So he's recontextualized and repurposed essentially a model that he had in his studio to commemorate something new and mark a change in the status of the Black figure or of Black people in, in France. Well, and the base is still somewhat legible and, and people can see it in the show. Yes. So it was his original model, which he attached a sockle to it. But what we have in the show, because the original model is just ahead at this point, is that he made miniatures as well for a commercial market to sell. And we have, thanks to the bequest of Jane Reitzman, one of these miniatures in the show. And it's the first time these have ever been paired so that people can really see what the original looked like. It's a painted terracotta with that base. So you can see the inscription and read it. And we've transcribed it in the book. There's a bronze version made by Tomir in the 19th century that's in Paris. So people, you can see the intact bust and sockle in other forms. But this miniature is special because it's from Udon's studio. It's not, it's not made sort of after outside of the studio. The next work that precedes the Carpo that I'd like to raise is a sculpture by Bartholdi from 1863-64, sculpture known as Allegory of Africa because it was created for a monument commission to the National Gallery of Arts collection. It comes to your show from them. It seems to me that it nods to or might descend from um, a famed European standard, in this case, Leonardo's 1526 to 31 night at the Medici Chapel in Florence. What is Bartholdi doing, adding, and constructing? Yeah, so Bartholdi receives a commission in the 1850s to create a monument to commemorate a French admiral, Brulat, who was responsible for leading a fleet into Algeria in 1830 for the you know, violent invasion of that country in the beginning of French colonialism in North Africa. Following that was just an, you know, an esteemed and celebrated French admiral who continued to lead other colonialist missions to expand the empire into other parts of the world. So this fountain was meant to be a celebration of his stature in Comar. And Bartholdi decided that the fountain he would he would look to our historical sources of fountains of great rulers, leaders, generals, etc. And so he's very much, I think, you know, looking to Rome, looking to Italy. You think of all the great fountains in Rome. And 
So he structures this fountain as you have Brua on top standing as a large scale full length statue. And beneath him are the four parts of the world into which he led these colonial missions. So it's Africa, Oceania, Asia, and the Americas. So the Admiral himself represents the all-powerful Europe and European supremacy. And there's a visual hierarchy that is very clearly made or conveyed through this sculptural, through this monument. So at the bottom, you have the allegorical figures representing these parts of the world. And the figure of Africa is, you know, lounging in the seat of a kind of Greco-Roman river god. Again, I think very much evoking classical and Renaissance representations. And he has a kind of stoicism and seriousness and a very beautiful, you know, posture and, and body type. And he is also, you know, recalling the grand tradition of the iconography of the four parts of the world, which from the Renaissance onward was a very popular motif, which was a means of expressing European influence and reach and proximity through trade and empire with the rest of the world. And the way in which the different continents were represented was through largely through iconography, each figure holding props and symbols that represented the resources that would be available for cultivation, the goods and resources for which those areas of the world were known, and the area, uh, the goods and resources that Europeans hoped to have access, gain access to and be enriched from. So Africa is often represented holding things like cornucopia full of, of corn with dripping in pearls, uh, wearing elephant headdress, having kind of all these exoticizing elements, typically always nude, partially nude or fully nude, bare-breasted. Uh, traditionally, the representations of the four parts of the world are female. And so it's very much to represent, you know, the personification of Africa as being close to nature, being less civilized, quote unquote, than European powers. And on the base of this fountain, the figure of Africa is instead male, again, because he's combining a different iconography, you know, the notion of a river god alongside a personification of, of country, or uh, sorry, of the continent. And he's lounging and there is the lion pelt that he lays on, which is extremely beautifully rendered. And, but really that's sort of it. He wears a grass skirt, but the iconography has been toned down and it's largely his physiognomy by which you recognize, oh, this is Africa, uh, which I think is a really important aspect of the sculpture because earlier representations of, of Africa are less physiognomically specific. And here we, we see that Bartholdi is very focused on this notion of identifying a place based on notions of race as defined by skin color and by facial features, uh, by hair texture, physical characteristics. Peter Camper's facial angle, all that good pseudoscientific response to the Enlightenment. Yes. He says sarcastically. <laughs> um, so the French abolished slavery, not for the first time, in 1848. Mm -hmm. Carpeau modeled the work around which this exhibition is constructed in 1868, 15 years after this Bartholdi and nearly a, a generation after, or maybe a full generation after the second French abolition of slavery. So what are we to think of how 
of that 20 year period, that 20 year gap in Carpo's motivations? Many people have said to me, this is sort of the question they want. And one of the reasons I was really compelled to work on this exhibition with Wendy, my co-curator, was because I really wanted to address what a lot of art historians have just kind of scratched their heads about. <laughs> and it's been, you know, speculated a sentence or two dedicated to, you know, this is a strange thing. But what is this really about? <laughs> the first thing I would say is that I think that I think Carpeau is working very much in, in the tradition that he had witnessed Udon work in, which is a commemorative mode, that he didn't understand sculpture to be a means of provoking change or, you know, agitating for revolution, that sculptors in French society very much worked in alignment with government, with the state, because it's their, their line of work is expensive, it requires commissions, and they understood their art form to often be in the service of the state through public commissions and public works. And Carpo, despite whatever Republican influences were part of his artistic development, which is certainly the case, he was a student of Francois Roude and he was surrounded by people who you know, were Republicans during, during the, the revolution of 1848. In the 1850s, and especially by the 1860s, his focus is really on imperial, his relationship with Napoleon III and the Empress Eugenie, from whom he sought commissions. So he, why does he come to this subject so much later? I think he's addressing it at a moment when abolition was really a source of national pride and was thought about in France as a something something that differentiated them from the United States that gave them a kind of cultural and moral superiority and also which justified colonialism to an extent that i think that celebrating abolition at a moment of you know expanding colonialism in North Africa was very much used as a sort of a justification but abolition was really on French Republicans' minds in the 1860s because of the American Civil War and their interest in that. You know, Bartholdi, it's interesting that just a few years later, then he's working on the Statue of Liberty. And so I think Carpeau wants to participate in this interest. And in particular, he wants to profit from it. He was a very commercial, entrepreneurial artist, much like Cordier, who was Cordier was masterful in profiting from change and from abolition and from aligning his work with a kind of humanitarianism or what was understood as a humanitarianism. And so I think that, you know, Carpeau's work was, is one that really absorbs all of these really pronounced trends in, in, in art at the moment, combining ethnography with this moral message that appealed to people in this moment. So I think another impetus for Carpeau creating this work and the late date he does is the Universal Exhibition of 1867 and the ways in which anti-slavery sentiment and this multiculturalism, I say that with scare quotes again, because it's normally, it's a, it's a term that's often seen as neutral, but is in the context of the Universal Exhibition in Paris, which was hosted by Napoleon III, is not neutral at all. But multiculturalism and anti-slavery 
you know, sentiment were on display. Ward's Freedman, which is included in an exhibition, a cast of it was on display, which Carpeau undoubtedly would have seen. Uh, Cordier had a sculpture called Love One Another, which has a black and white marble carved figures, uh, babies kissing. It's it's a really strange, strange work, but symbolic um, and meant to fit into the kind of allegorical material of the moment. And these works were much discussed. Edmonia Lewis came to the 1867 Universal Exhibition, came from Rome to Paris to see it. And so discussion of this was in the air and again was really also was a source of national pride. And one of one of the central components of this exhibition is to recognize the ways in which abolition, abolition and colonialism are, are related and not contradictory, but were really moving in parallel. And looking at the Universal Exhibition of 1867, you see this very clearly. There's an abolitionist discourse that's happening through many works of art, celebration of the United States abolition, and at the same time, enormous displays of the French Empire, of, of Algerian resources and goods, and the exhibition itself being a massive display of colonial power and was intended to evoke that to the world. And that Carpeau's Wyborn Enslaved comes out of, is developed out of a commission for a fountain that would represent the four parts of the world situated on the symbolic meridian line between the Luxembourg Palace and the Paris Observatory. Uh, the Paris Observatory was created in the 17th century under Louis XIV as a, an institution for study of space and maritime and colonialism of, of expansion. And so this is a really symbolic site that represents the four parts of the world commissioned in the same moment that the Universal Exhibition is, is up in Paris and is bringing 11 million people from all parts of the world and dozens and dozens of different countries displays. The underlying message here is that Paris is the center of the world and the center of a very powerful, all-encompassing empire. And Carpo's bust is developed from this concept. And I don't think we can understand the bust without understanding the fountain. I tread lightly on the fountain in my essay. I give a broad overview of it, put it in context of empire. But I did so because there's a forthcoming essay by a young emerging scholar named Hoyan Mefuki. He is a PhD student at WashU, and he wrote his MA thesis on Carpeau's Four Parts of the World Fountain, and it's about empire and empiricism. And while I haven't read it, he he's publishing it, and I know that he deals very in-depth with these issues mm -hmm. and um, has done a huge amount of research. So I've, you know, footnoted him mm -hmm. knowing that the fountain and its really knowing that he gives a really nuanced read of the fountain in the context of empire, of housemanization, and of Napoleon's, uh, Napoleon III's imperial pursuits. Maybe, maybe one of the things you're thinking of is that there's a, I don't know if this is your word or mine, but there's a certain performativeness at work here that you suggest in your essay, both on the part of the artist and also the presumed patron, Eugenie. Uh, Eugenie. So Carpo makes this work at a moment when the 
civil war in the United States has come to a close. And I think it's really important to note that while the results of the civil war were celebrated by French Republicans, the French state remained neutral in the affair for business, you know, for commercial reasons <laughs> to sort of not rock the boat with important trade agreements they had. But also that Napoleon III was not very quiet about his actual support of the South, mostly because they were his kind of passageway into Mexico. But I also think, you know, and this is, I can't prove this, but I feel strongly that Napoleon III didn't think that slavery was actually over. I think that he witnessed his uncle, Napoleon I, reinstate slavery after it had been abolished in 1794. He reinstates it in 1802 everywhere except for Haiti because they had, you know, were declared their independence or were about to. And he, I don't think he thought it was over. And I think that the war in the United States then finally really was the final note for it. And I think only after that moment did the imperial couple say, okay, the world is changing in this way. And it was at a moment of really waning influence. You know, he French, was French influence. Waning French influence. Napoleon III was extremely conservative and his was very conservative in many aspects of his administration throughout the 1850s and 60s. And then all of a sudden, as he's as he's losing sort of power, momentum, and popularity, begins to implement some really modest social reforms to appease sort of Republican sentiments and demands. And I think that Eugenie's attraction to this object and Carpeau's creation of it was to provide a symbol with which they could identify their alignment with this cause much belatedly. I think the phrase you used in your catalog essay, which is a really good one, is that herein a combination of empathy and domination. There's a sense that while this work carries an anti-slavery message, it also very much conveys a sense of racial inequality and domination over the Black figure and Black women's bodies. And while many people see this as a contradiction, it is, it's also perfectly in line with where French society was at that moment and what the really priorities of the imperial couple and of the state were at this moment was abolition is over, we condemn slavery, but we also need to continue justifying colonialism and our pursuits, which are based on and tethered to notions of inequality of the races and of white supremacy and superiority over other groups of people. How might we or how do you consider the female body and the nude in the 19th century French sculptural tradition always, almost always, culturally and politically constructed into whiteness? And the presentation here of the Black female body by Carpeau and the other artists, other French artists in, in the show, does anything migrate from, from one approach, the construction of whiteness, into the address and construction of Black subjects? One thing that's very pronounced in Cordier's work is the ways in which he kind of assimilates the Black figure into Western and white notions of beauty and classicism. And this has been interpreted in a number of ways. First, I'll say, how does he do this? By you know, cloaking his figures and sometimes classicizing you know, drapery. I'm thinking the woman from the colonies that's in the Met's collection is 
in some ways very much evokes a Roman imperial bust with colorful marble, luxuriously draped, and she has an extremely sort of dignified and serene expression on her face. And so in many ways, there's an effort to ennoble the Black figure in the work of Cordier. On the other hand, that sense of ennoblement is met with an you know, exoticism and an ornateness and an effort to differentiate the Black figure and, and the fact that it's always, they're always depicted as a typological as opposed to known individuals whose humanity is on display. Instead, it's tropes and notions of what Blackness is. And James Smalls writes about this in his essay, I think very convincingly, that the act of assimilating the Black figure into Western conventions of beauty is not politically neutral. It is quite charged when you consider the efforts to expand French influence and French culture into Algeria and, and Africa in order to, again, quote unquote, civilize people who the French perceived were inferior. Um, so I think his works very much embody this notion of an aspiration for what empire might achieve by assimilating the Black figure into Western notions and ideals. Cordier writes about his interest in depicting the beauty of different peoples based on their own standards of beauty and not kind of assimilating or absorbing all figures into a Western notion. But his work doesn't necessarily do that. But it's interesting that he was kind of using that language and thinking, thinking about it. So I discussed Cordier, but in Carpeau's work, I think we see you know, the influence of a sculptural tradition of depicting the white figure in the way that Carpeau is really dramatizing this figure, you know, in the likeness of a kind of an emulation of Michelangelo and a lot of you know, romantic Renaissance and romantic sculpture. So her twisting motion really evokes Michelangelo's dying slave. And the work as it's been interpreted previously in museums is really that, you know, this is a really dramatic, exquisite example of sculpture, of sculptural form uh, that is in which Carpo is really absorbing the lessons of Michelangelo and of great sculpture that he had witnessed in Rome, which is certainly true. But I think it's important to keep in mind that he's using a contemporary event and a very real one, not a mythological one. And again, kind of aestheticizing it. I think he was quite interested in the drama that slavery allowed. Um, I think we see this in his sketches that he's going through his kind of Rolodex of art historical sources of Andromeda and, and Michelangelo and thinking about different captive types and how he can imbue his figure with maximum emotion and dramatic effect. So he saw slavery as in the same way that, you know, this is an artist who is working on Ugolino and, you know, human pain and suffering. And I think he saw slavery as a similar subject that would allow him to maximize kind of creative exploration. And so the part of the appeal of this work is that it's extraordinarily beautiful in its artistic conception. And it's that pull and appeal of it that I think, you know, I really wanted in this exhibition and Wendy and I felt so strongly about to really put into question so that you're 
made aware of this tension that exists by the beauty of the object and then you know the the pain that it represents so you mentioned james smalls a moment ago his essay it's really good we'll have a link to the catalog on the show page on manpodcast.com it is quite affordable yay smalls writes in part on the powerful confluence of bigoted and racializing pseudoscience and the french realist tradition which come together in in a lot of the works in this show how did the joining of those two tracks, if you will, help create ideology and help inform, create, extend the French idea of the French nation? I think naturalism has a long tradition in French sculpture. And the closer, I think something that is often misunderstood in art history is that there's a notion that the more naturalistic something looks, the more real it must be. Mm-hmm. And that there's a kind of truth behind naturalism. And furthermore, that naturalistic works, therefore, are not symbols. So there's often been a misunderstanding around works that are highly naturalistic and have been described as ethnographic, that they are sort of scientific, when, in fact, the argument we make in this exhibition is that these works are no less symbolic and that they are their own form of allegory. And this is something that, you know, we held a convening of scholars in March of 2021, external scholars to just really kind of brainstorm around ideas on this exhibition and to help inform our perspective. You know, James Smalls, Adrian, all the writers of the book were were present as well as others. And something that came up at the convening was, isn't ethnography allegory? And I think it is. So I think there's a dovetailing of naturalism and these pseudosciences And the naturalism helps to veil the construction of race that is happening, which is entirely contrived and gives it the appearance of being real, true, and natural. Ethnography was a science that's now been debunked by a a, a really a theorization of the human, humankind as divisible by skin tone and that humans could be categorized and then therefore placed into a scheme and hierarchy based on their physical attributes, which were then related to internal characteristics as well. And art has played a really powerful role in concretizing these theories by reaffirming typologies and reaffirming notions of blackness versus whiteness. I mean, when you think about the entire neoclassical tradition, it associates whiteness with virtue, with knowledge, with morality. Intelligence, excellence. All of it. And what the black figure then represents its opposite and represents, so after the abolition of slavery, there's a moment when, okay, the black figure is being thought about in different ways now. And Cordier's works were heralded. I mean, his, his bust after Said and Kess was presented at the 1848 Salon, plaster version of it, and was heralded as this you know, new symbol of abolition because it conveyed the appearance of really the humanity, you know, dignified humanity of its sitter. But the really important thing to, to realize is that it's not a portrait of a person. 
Said and Kess, the man, Sudanese man from Darfur, who was formerly enslaved and became a working model in Paris, modeled for this work, but it wasn't ever presented as a portrait of him. Rather, his likeness was used to create a symbol and it was given different names throughout its display. It was originally debuted as Said Abdallah, so a title that would make it more kind of generic. And then later, a few years later, presented elsewhere at, under Nech de Timbuktu. So the figure actually become kind of conflates people's uh, different identities and communities, becomes this malleable symbol, of really whatever the artist wants it to, or the, the conflation of all of Africa into a single figure. This is what Africa looks like. That is a typology you know, that is a massive construction. The danger and what we've, the legacy we still live with is this notion that humans can be categorized and given characteristics. Once those stereotypes are in place, it's so difficult to remove them. I mean, and it's something we thought about even in the show, we're putting these works out on view in order to put them in a critical context and bring them together and tell this, what we think is a critical reevaluation of these works, but we also recognize that in putting them on view, their gravitational pull continues. It's worth noting that art was really important in the construction of the pseudoscience and philosophy you mentioned. So when George Glidden and Josiah Knott, who contributed one of the first and most significant American contributions to the transatlantic construction of race and whiteness, write their landmark book, they include Renaissance sculptures of people constructed as white as their ideals of whiteness, as if they were actual people and not sculptures, right? So art is implicated in this from the start. And it must be said, present project accepted. This is a story that art historians in particularly, this is a history that art historians and especially Americanists have not tripped over themselves trying to address, <laughs> shall we say. The illusion is we have we all have we need to be honest with ourselves about what this illusion is because something about this exhibition, my essay is there's some original research, but actually for the most part, this information is always it's always been out there, readily accessible. And ignored and, and alighted, as you said. Yeah, it's really I, discredited. You know, you know, James Smalls's work has been around for a long time and it never made its way into museum labels. Yeah. Yeah. You know, speaking of George Glidden in, a, in, a, in kind of a backdoor way, Glidden was America's first important Egyptologist, which is probably giving him a little more academic cred than he deserves. But for the purposes of America, he was it. What, what if any, impact did European expeditions to Egypt, more or less beginning in the early to mid-19th century, so just before the work in your show, what impact did those expeditions have on French interest in sculptures such as Carpeaux or Cordier's, or maybe even on Carpeaux or Cordier themselves? After 1848, there are more expeditions and state-sponsored missions to North Africa than ever before. And there's this sense of a, a dramatic shift in focus from the West Indies colonies to the North African colonies. And the consequences of them is, is this notion of a cultural proximity that all of a sudden the Black figure becomes really prevalent in French culture. 
black figure and North African figures. And these works, I think, are are part of a, a new sense of this is this is territory and a peoples for us to explore and to depict, and through our depictions, control and narrativize in ways that are suitable to our sensibility and that 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 reaffirm our French colonial values. And it's this increased contact with North Africa at this moment that's often been mischaracterized as a kind of neutral neutral cultural exchange, but it's not a neutral thing. It's a it's very much shaped by colonial power and power asymmetries. Um, and we we see this in the way that these figures are are depicted. But this all this moment also marks again the uh, increase in imagery of black the black figure because there's increased contact. And so you see black figures in art throughout the 1850s, 60s, and Carpo's work is is a product of this. And art history has often celebrated this as its representation. You know, there was a dearth of black figures in painting and sculpture, and now there's a lot of it and its representation. And one thing that we try to really dive into in this exhibition and critically address is what constitutes diverse rep- representation and what what does not. And so that's why it's really important to recognize that while living models posed for these works, they are not representations of people as individuals with their individual humanity. They're depictions of typologies and that people uh, people's likenesses have been morphed and manipulated by by white artists to convey ideas and ideologies that would reinforce a colonial perspective. You know, it's also really interesting to me, and, you know, I don't think we need to spend time on it, that everything we've discussed in the last 15 minutes has enormous implications for the development of French modernism. So this is, you know, we are not discussing a moment that is frozen in time. We will, we're, we're discussing a moment in constructions, both pictorial and philosophical and political. I guess yeah. that's not both. That's all of those. That, you know, that carry forward into the 1900s in, in, the, in the major instigating works of French modernism, such as Matisse's 1907 Blue Nude, which is probably a painting of a photographic representation. And of course, Picasso's Les Demoiselles. And then in, in both of their oeuvres, oeuvres thereafter. Yeah. I want to close by asking you about kind of one of the core strategies behind the show. Y'all could have let the 19th century stand on its own. You could have offered, for example, contemporary to Carpo and Cordier examples of Black achievement that would have given lie to some of the constructions within Cordier's work, within Carpo's work. Instead, accepting an Edmonia Lewis, for example, you address the fictions Cordier and Carpo extend by including the work of contemporary to us artists, artists like Kara Walker and Kehinda Wiley. Why that way? Why, why, why the contemporary? Why adding work contemporary to our present? You know, looking across the canon of European art, I felt that there were very few foils and works that would complicate and refuse Carpo's depiction and the ideologies that it represents. And Black self-representation in particular, is hard to find in European in the European tradition. So it would, I would already be moving to you know American art, and that was our inclusion of Edmonia Lewis felt critical because we wanted to represent that. And just in the exhibition, we give that work pride of place. 
where it's in direct conversation with Carpo's piece. So you witness the differences between a white male French artist, his idea of what a depiction of a black figure looks like 20 years after the French abolition versus what Edmonia Lewis's depiction of what freedom and the black figure of what freedom and the black figure look like in 1867, just two years after the ends of the American Civil War. And of course, she she makes it in Rome. So there's a direct European connection too. But beyond that, we felt that in keeping true to our subject matter without looking at print material or, you know, fugitive slave ads, which are really an interesting avenue to search in that Charmaine A. Nelson is working on because there is sort of self-representation there or, or representation of, of Black revolt and their, their tremendous efforts and of resistance. But we felt that, that those forms of representation moved so far into ephemera and a different type of show. And one of the points we really wanted to make in this exhibition is that fine art, sculpture and painting really weren't doing the work of abolition, you know, weren't promoting the cause. They were commemorating it after the fact through the nationalist perspective of, of those in power. In the United States too, it must be said. Right. So we looked to instead, I wanted to address one of the one of the reasons for doing this exhibition was the tremendous legacy of Carpeau's work in popular culture. I mean, this bust is everywhere. And, you know, it's in Architectural Digest as a decorative fixture in Janet Jackson's home. It's in Beyonce's ad campaign for her clothing. And I, again, I think that some people really embrace the sculpture as a form of representation in the absence of other forms of representation. But it's so suffused and it's everywhere in our popular culture there are candles wax candles made by Sir Trudon a luxury candle company it's still replicated you can buy replicas online and so I, I just I felt like we really wanted to address what replication and the commercialization of this object meant in the present day and a lot of people have asked me whether we commissioned these works from these artists and I think it's really oh, important. You mean Wiley and Walker? From Wiley and Walker. Yeah. And it's really important to me that everybody know that we did not commission them, that these are the reason for their inclusion is to demonstrate that Carpeau's work is still being addressed, is, is powerful and problematic enough that it has been the subject of redress and of, of critical reproach by artists who are invested in these issues. You know, Kara Walker is completely brilliant, I think, in her response to this. And a lot of the art historical work that would have otherwise had to happen through text is so much more intelligently done through art when... Differently, differently. Come on, give us a little credit. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I just, I, I, you know, I, I look at Kara Walker's work and I wonder, I mean, it just, I think it achieves so much. You know, I'm so inspired by it and I always wonder how words could ever match. <laughs> the multivalence, multivalency of that work. There's just so much to unpack. I'm so inspired by it. But I don't know. I feel, I feel like the, the, it's an insufficient answer, and I think it should be a continued conversation. The works included, Caitlin Beach says this really well in her essay, that they're not like solvents. She uses that word. They're not solvents to Carpo's work. They're not included to sort of easily resolve the issues, the hierarchies of race, 
and the racism of his work. You know, it's notable that Kahinda Wiley is a very commercial artist who, whose work has a lot of similarities to Carpo's. He made his piece in a series of 250. It's made from cast marble dust combined with resin. That's a different note. You know, he made it in a series of 250. It is and it isn't. <laughs> a series of 250 and he was he sold it originally in museum gift shops as a sort of I think he he must have been aware of the way in which Carpo's work was, you know, commercialized and sit on people's mantles and in their libraries and he's wanting to sort of replace that with a different image, but it's not an image which represents the black figure and kind of heroically, I don't, I don't see it that way. He looks over his shoulder with a really harrowing expression. And unlike Wiley's other works where the black figure stands in for the black figure replaces these grand heroic, you know, monarchs and kings and powerful figures. This is, this is a contemporary black man standing in for an enslaved woman. And the ghost of that famous pose is still present. And, and so I think he's really thinking about the horrific legacy of the ideologies that underpin and the effects on that contemporary black men like that represented now live through and endure. And while the ropes are absent, I find the truncated arms still very eerie, his hunched shoulders and his look over his shoulder insinuating his arms are behind his back. Elise Nelson, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, I've listened to this podcast for so long. I'm really honored to be part of it.